all of our parents are still healing and we're more healed than all of our parents. And I think that's a big part of this like change that's happening right now, this like energetic ascension, right? Like humanity can go on a different course with our generation healing ourselves and then teaching our children and our parents even to heal themselves too. Hello and welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with me and Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so very many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review and subscribe because I love hearing all your feedback, but more importantly, it gets to more ears and the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode now and I hope you have a wonderful listen. This is the first bio I've ever not changed. I don't want to touch it. Thank you. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you so okay. much. I'm going to give this a go. The one thing I might have to ask you about is some of these immense, these immense industry tastemakers that you mentioned. In today's episode, I am speaking to Sarah Landry. Sarah is relentless. At once immensely creative and wholly uncompromising, Sarah is a self-taught producer, audio engineer, and DJ known for her dark, driving, and divinely feminine brand of industrial techno. Though only a few years into what is sure to be a long and storied career, Sarah has quickly emerged as one of the most exciting new voices in techno, with her releases on T-minus, Craft Deck, (laughs) Craft Tech, I actually did practice this, I promise. Craft Tech, Mousetrap, spelt with a five, and the Outlaw Oceans Music Project, quickly attracting an ever-growing community of loyal fans and cementing her firmly on the radar of some of the industry's most prominent tastemakers, including Perk, Adam Bayer, Umek, Pleasurecraft, Aaron Vegale, Arjun Vagali. Right. Weber. Oh, Weber. Weber, <laughs> Joy Hauser, Dubfire, and Monica Cruz. <laughs> As a producer, Sarah is an irrefutable powerhouse who delights in surprising her listeners, deftly pushing the envelope to craft innovative sonic experiences that are, above all else, deliberate, witchy, and weird. Her productions have been streamed millions of times, are frequently featured on Spotify's Techno Bunker, and her Sacrifice EP released on Craft Deck went to number four on Techno Releases on Beatport. As a DJ, Sarah is an explosive presence and open channel, consistently delivering thunderous hammering sets that have won the hearts of techno fanatics all over the world and earned her a slew, great word, of high-profile 2021 bookings at Coachella's Yuma Tent, Red Rocks, and Brooklyn Mirage. 
At her core, Sarah is an international energetic conduit. Her sole goal with her music is to help her audiences transcend known musical experiences by providing a space for them to lose themselves in a realm she manifests with her meticulously executed productions and warehouse live stream events series Clubhouse. Woo! What the <laughs> hell? That's a sweet bio. Thank you. <laughs> It took me so long to write it. And for those of you who can't see us, which is all of you, I was sitting here channeling my innate Englishness, you know, shrinking away from hearing my own words of praise while drinking tea. So that's... Oh my God. Firstly, it's all correct. So it's, you know, it's all correct. And secondly, it's so beautifully worded. I just love, I feel like this bio, I so often get, and not to slam any of my previous guests, but I so often get almost like bullet points. Whereas this is like, I can, I, I just like, I feel like I know you from this bio, like the way that you articulate yourself and the way that you sort of see the world. And I really get a sense of your music. Thank you. you. Thank you. That's written entirely by me. I have this secret writing skill in the bank that served me very well in college and (laughs) almost nowhere else. (laughs) So every so often I like to kind of, I'll be like, (coughs) cracks knuckles, time to to disrupt the industry. Right. And it's, um, so I'm glad that it resonates because again, I feel like I get this weird, almost like I'm like, am I allowed to say, like, am I allowed to say this about myself? Like, are people like, you know, because it's all correct. All of it's correct. I just feel so it's weird, like, writing about myself in the third person and, you know, talking <laughs> about music I made at my mom's house, you know, like, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning, you were slightly reserved over the idea of coming onto the podcast because of the fact that you have now you know, a lovely relationship with your father. Totally. So if you just want to tell us a little bit about that and then we can go back. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of weird. My relationship with both of my parents and I love them both very much. They're both incredible people has really changed since I've been an adult. Um, I really did kind of raise myself and I did help raise my little brother who's three years younger than me. He will absolutely attest to that and back that up. But we you know, our, mm-hmm. our parents were kind of embroiled in their own personal lives, their own personal dramas. And so even though they probably didn't realize it, it meant that my brother and I kind of had to do a lot of our own raising of ourselves and emotional, you know, growth of emotional intelligence and learning how to navigate relationships and stuff like that. And so, it, you know, I was kind of, you know, emotionally, effectively, like on my own up until I was about like 17 or 18 and I went to college And then it was at the point that I was in college and kind of was growing up and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and kind of navigating, you know, this college experience that I was told I had to do because I didn't want to go and get like a degree. You know, I didn't know what I wanted, but it wasn't that. And so it was kind of through that where my dad and I really became close. And it's weird Mm -hmm. because even though he wasn't necessarily like as present in my life, you know, from 17 and younger really since like 18 or 19 ish, we've been super close and we're very good, you know, friends now. We have a great relationship now and it's because our personalities are so similar. He's an adult. He he knows how to relate to me as an adult person, especially through the lens of like building my business and, you know, having all these conversations. And it's been so helpful now 
as an adult, right, that I'm kind of like to the point where I'm like, you know what, this totally evens out, you know, I'm at this point because, you know, I was kind of by myself during these early years, but now I feel like I really do need him. And he's been here for me more than I could have ever hoped. And so it's kind of this weird space where like we had these issues when I was younger and now, you know, thanks, I think at least partially to me, my healing journey, my, you know, my studying of psychology and my viewing both my parents through the lens of them being, you know, adult children that are ultimately flawed and kind of emotionally stunted as people, like it's kind of put us in a different spot. And so it's really interesting. That is. Yeah. Oh my God. So many. Okay. So much I wanted to ask. But firstly, so why was it that both your parents were absent in your youth? My parents got divorced when I was like seven. And um, so yeah, 2000, I was seven. And I've heard very different stories from each of them on how the divorce went right? Like they both have completely (laughs) different stories. Of course, right? Two sides to every coin, completely different stories about how the divorce went. And so, but what I remember, what my brother remembers, right, is that it was like a highly contentious divorce, like Mm. classic, like American courtroom, attorneys screaming, I hate your father, your mother is terrible, like that kind of like contentious divorce. Wow. Like really contentious. Weapons? Totally. That? 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's kind of, and I mean, like, no knock on them, right? Like, my parents are both the, they're both the products of their own environments, right? Like, they're both the products of, you know, the way that their parents raised them, which was like in the 60s and 70s, where like nobody talked about their feelings. And my mom's side of the family <laughs> is Latina, and my grandmother, who I love dearly, has, you know, kind of a long and storied history of, you know, maybe relying on emotional manipulation more than other communication techniques. Um, But, you know, so my mom kind of, you know, picked up some of those traits and my mom had a bad relationship with her father. And I think internalized that and kind of that trauma was kind of passed to me, but they had their Mm -hmm. own stuff. And so they were kind of wrapped up in their own melodrama of like, feeling hurt by each other and both wanting to come out on top by this divorce and feeling super stressed out. And my mom, according to my dad, was playing dirty. And my dad, according to my mom, was playing dirty. Like everybody was apparently playing dirty. I remember bits and pieces of it. But so my dad ended up, we were living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. My dad ended up moving to California where his family was to kind of like reset and recenter and be close to his family during this difficult time. And then, so he was a couple states away and they had some custody agreement and I don't know the exact details, but it resulted in me not seeing my dad a lot. And then he met my stepmother and they just got divorced. Um, But he met her and they got remarried, I think in like 2004 when I was like 10 or 11. And then, so I had kind of like this double life childhood where I was mostly with my mom as a single mother who was actively dating and then occasionally with my dad and his new wife and my new siblings from that marriage and his relationships. So that's kind of what it was. It wasn't that he was like, screw you guys, I don't want to be a father. It was like, I think he felt very trapped and ostracized by how badly this divorce had gone and kind of needed to go to a safe space to lick his wounds. And he's, he's a career person. He's very much like me, very like analytical, like sees his value as 
you know, coming directly from what he does, highly intellectual, very smart man who likes to do mm. things. And he kind of, you know, ended up being very high achieving in his like corporate roles and was starting companies or being upper level executives at companies. So he was traveling. So he just like wasn't around very much. And mm-hmm. we've talked about that since and his wives have called wives have called him out on that set. Ex-wives have <laughs> called him out on that sense. Yeah. You know, like these, how, these are how many days you were gone or whatever. Right. But, um, yeah. it was interesting. So he still had that same, he still sort of was absent for quite a lot of his life with all of those relationships that he had. Yeah. And I think, mm. you know, honestly, I think, and I don't think that was an intentional choice by him. And this is kind of what I mean about, you know, seeing things through an adult perspective, with empathy, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that's how we can heal our relationships with our parents, right? Is seeing, you know, I'm 26, right? About to turn 27. And my parents mm-hmm. were married and about to have me at, at my age, right? Like when I was born. And so I think seeing through these perspectives and seeing, you know, how different we are really can add some sort of empathy that I think can help heal latent family wounds and trauma. But I think for Definitely. him, part of the reason why was, I think in his upbringing, he had always kind of been like, you know, he had an older brother. He was the second oldest boy and some older sisters, but he had like an older brother that had some pretty serious mental health problems that came out in his late Mm -hmm. teens. And so my dad kind of became this like new male figure of the family. And I think there were a lot of expectations there, you know, kind of growing up as a man in the 70s and what was expected and having to provide. And his parents didn't come from a ton of money and he had four siblings. And there was like all of this stuff that I think kind of pushed him in this direction where he did want to make a better life for himself and work really hard. And that kind of created that drive. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it also gave him this viewpoint of being this, you know, breadwinner, a man of the family, successful businessman like these you know, so societal constructs and notions that I think he thought he had to fulfill. And I think yeah. that's part of the reason why he kind of found this like safety and solace in his work, especially when interpersonal relationships and family stuff got kind of challenging. And so like, I get that, like, I totally empathize with that. But like, you know, that's part of the reason why he wasn't around when I was younger. And I think also my mom, love her, mean it, was very... She was very toxic and I think she was very hurt by the divorce. And I think her response was to try and hurt him as much as she could. And that I think created a lot of stress. So we were mostly with my mom and it really was kind of a toxic environment during the divorce because she was so hurt, you know, Mm. so hurt and so scared and so fearful and just didn't know how to heal herself. And I think still doesn't. Like I think she just didn't get that skill set either taught to her or she didn't kind of seek it out and learn how to do it. And so Mm -hmm. she, I think, has these like deep trauma wounds that are there, you know, from her relationship with her father. And so I remember her telling me deliberately, she's like, you know, casting the lens and putting like the filter of her experience, her perceived experience with her father, my grandfather, over, you know, my relationship with my dad and going, oh, your father's just like my father and he is abandoning his family to start a new family. And, you know, like this is like her perception that was filtered by the lens of her own traumatic experience. And so I remember these things hearing up. And I know you and I had talked a little bit about like generational trauma and how that kind of gets passed down and how it can shape the experiences of your children. And that's 100% what happened with me. I think healing yourself is one of the best things you can do. And it's a very ugly process because it requires you to kind of dig into these emotions that you've, you know, put in the drawer, right? 
to not feel because they hurt, right? And it really does, I think, to a certain extent involve going in and kind of addressing those latent things so that you can feel them and release them from both Mm -hmm. your energetic field and your nervous system where they'll get trapped if you're ever in a flight or flight or fight response like the and you if you're in a fight or flight response i think it's your parasympathetic nervous system and you don't move that trauma or that energy through and kind of feel safe again like your brain will kind of get stuck in that state and it kind of will affect the ways that you deal with other situations it's like an imprint of that fear right mm. and i mean there's a lot of ways you can do that whether you're doing it yourself or with like specific trauma therapy which i do recommend but i think part of the keys to getting through that really is empathy, right? And I think, and I've talked to my little brother about this and he's got like a lot of the same views and we've, you know, we grew up together, but our journeys of healing and, you know, self-actualization and self-improvement are a little bit different. But I think, I really do think that our generation, like people that are our age, this is kind of the first time that, you know, society's really been safe, safe enough to be able to do actual self-work and to focus on growth instead of survival. Like the way that I see it, you know, my grandparents and my parents, like the way that their behaviors were, like I don't think society was as accommodating of people being honest about their pain and doing self-work. And then I also think that so many people were just in survival mode and just trying to make it work. Like after the wars, after all those, all those world wars, (laughs) all that trauma, right? This fear, this pain. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't think anybody was ever given a chance to heal. It was just like, all right, go home and marry the first woman you see in a dress and pop out a couple kids and try not to hate each other. You know, like, I think that's kind of like how, how relationships work. Yeah. Right. Don't get, don't get divorced or God will hate you. You know, like, I think that's part of the trauma, right. Is that people weren't, you know, healthy relationships weren't encouraged. A lot of people didn't know what a healthy relationship was. People would marry, like, I cannot imagine 21 or 22 year old me being like, let's pick that man and be with him forever. Like, absolutely not. You know, you know, and then like women, I think were largely trapped by their circumstances where like, especially in like the 40s, 50s, 60s, women couldn't really possess their own wealth. And it was hard to get custody of your children. So I had a conversation once with an elder, elderly woman, and she said it was it was very normal for men to be allowed to have affairs. That was or mistresses. That was like a normal thing, and a woman had to just accept it. I don't know if I'm right in saying this, but I have a feeling that when women started getting stronger rights and um, voices and more power within like the gender dynamic, if we're just thinking of man and woman, you know, affairs were less tolerated. And it was just like, well, no, that can't happen. And so maybe that was a part of divorce being more of a commonality. Yeah. Hang on, why did I start this? There was something. It was to do with how, oh, how marriage has evolved. And now there does seem to be much more of like this equal partnership. And I did an amazing interview with Um, the psychotherapist and author Julia Samuel earlier on in season one and in this season. And she was saying how men are expected to be much more expected, if not expected, to be like an equal partner, at least in like um, the society that we live in here in the UK. And I think potentially in America as well. Like That's an expectation now rather than like a bonus. And, Mm. and you know, to be present, to be emotionally available, to be part of the the parenting, like bringing up the child. But the remnants, if that's the right word, of the very strong patriarchal society, which we still live in, still still feeds off. And, you know, and I think (laughs) 
I don't know if I'm, again, being too sweeping here, but like disrupts those marriages that are supposed to be of equal partnership because still there'll be this boys will be boys attitude that I think can can right. obviously ruin a marriage because of the fact that that's been... Boys will be boys was a phrase that was so commonly used not that long ago and still, I mean, it pisses me off so much when I hear it now. <laughs> Same. <laughs> you know, I think that's definitely a part... I think a huge part of it is that I don't think like... I don't think like I look at like my little brother, right? And my little brother is super like emotionally intuitive and in touch with his emotions. And he wasn't when he was a teenager, like he had a lot of anger. But now in his 20s, he's taken the steps to be a really great partner and super in touch with his emotions and an effective communicator. But my dad didn't teach him that. Mm -hmm. Like my dad is still learning that, right? And I think part of the reason is I don't think men are taught how to do that. Like I actually honestly thought, think that historically men are discouraged mm. from exploring their feelings, from, Definitely. you know, feeling like their negative emotions are okay, right? From thinking they always have to be this like strong man who takes care of everybody. And I think that's a really unrealistic expectation of men. It's toxic for both parties. Super toxic. Yeah. Completely. Oh yeah. And then I remember, and you and I are about the same age, so I'm sure you'll remember this too. I remember seeing like old rom-coms or like stuff in the nineties that was like, relationships, right? Or even being told when I was younger, like, oh, if that boy's mean to you, that means he likes you. Yes. And that was another yes. part of it, right? Where this like toxic male behavior, this whole notion of like being buttoned up and not talking about your feelings, you know, meant that you would get more women or that women would be attracted to this sort of like toxicity, right? And I think it is kind of this, and I think it's this kind of like this dynamic of these two relationships that really does create a lot of issues, right? And I've noticed it in my parents' relationship, like the sort of imbalances there in both of their multiple mm. relationships, right? And some of my friends, like, you know, it's a dynamic that really I think is a lot more toxic, pervasive, and damaging than anybody originally mm -hmm. realized. And it's not until you have people like us that are kind of doing the work and asking the questions, you know, what have I not dealt with? Why am I feeling this way? You know, how is my behavior um, pushing me into certain scenarios that I'm maybe not equipped for and like all of these other things. Right. And it's, it's a hard conversation to have, but I think, you know, my dad and I have talked about this like pretty extensively since I've been an adult, like we've had a lot of conversations about it and it's brought us closer. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm like, Hey, like, I don't know if you're noticing this. And it's, it's weird. Cause I notice like, even when we like you and I can have these conversations and it's totally fine, but I'll notice with him, it's like new information. And he's kind of like, like, oh, uh, like, oh, God, like, is that, you know, like, he'll have like a mild to moderate existential crisis when we talk about this. He's like, I feel like I can tell he feels seen in an invasive way. You know, he's like, how do you know this? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're my child. You're not supposed to psychoanalyze me or whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. And it's, um, it's, it's interesting to see it play out. Mm. It's so true what you say. I've, I've, you know, that thing of women being allowed to be emotional and men not, and that then stunting yeah. like men's capability of emotional growth. Like, you know, when trees got, <laughs> trees got taller and so giraffes necks got longer, the sort of science behind right. that I see is like we as women, you know, nature versus nurture kind of situation. I don't of know course. all the science yeah. behind this. I'm sure there's, you know, people who will fully disagree with what I'm about to say. But we've been allowed to fully delve and dive and swim and freaking bathe in our emotions for like totally. time. And because we've been allowed that freedom in, in emotion. And I don't know whether or not we're, we're more inclined towards it and whatever. But... Men have not been allowed that. And women have not been allowed yeah. 
other things as well. Our generation, as you say, like your brother, are finally having to really teach themselves. Obviously, men are capable of being empathetic, emotional, understanding. Like this boys will be boys, men will be men. Toxicity has seen its day. And I think it's this kind of, it's a whole new language to have to come to terms with. And it probably is really overwhelming to have to like, yeah, finally be like, oh my God, I've got to talk about that. Like, yeah, I don't even have a language to be able to articulate myself with how I feel. Yeah. I also, I am also wondering kind of, you know, how much of it feels almost scarier to men because there's no like common talked about shared sense of experience, right? Like if no, if no other men are talking about, you know, this emotional trauma or the emotional wounds that they have from childhood, they might think that only they have them which I think kind of makes it doubly scary. Whereas like literally every single female friend I've ever had will like, if we, if we vibe, like we get into like the trauma immediately (laughs) and every single one of us has like a really similar story. Like I don't know any of my female friends that haven't said at least like 60 to 75, even higher, maybe 80% of the same story that I have. Right. Like such common experiences. And I think because we talk about it and we're allowed to talk about it, that kind of makes it easier to discuss. But I don't necessarily, like, from what I've heard, men don't like talk about that. I also think, and this is kind of interesting, right? Like, I also think, and I mean, like, we've kind of talked about this, like these notions of like um, divine feminine and, you know, pagan, Wiccan or witchcraft practices, these spaces where women historically speaking, would get together and kind of be intuitive and emotional under the cycles of the moon and be together as like a group of sisterhood, right? And men, I don't think really had that. Like they had like the church, right? Which is not known for being, you know, particularly supportive of emotional vulnerability. So I think that's part of the difference, right? Is that like women, historically in women's groups, we kind of are encouraged and allowed to kind of delve into this shared experience, this emotional experience. But men, I think it's like, well, bottle it up unless you have a bunch of scotch Mm -hmm. and then you apologize for saying your feelings later, right? So it's like... But it's also really interesting. I've just thought um, that, which I think I've probably thought before, but it's just come back to light. But you know how women are sort of often accused of being manipulative? And I do think that that's because that was our power. Our power was emotional capacity and that does obviously hold hands with being able to manipulate someone. And men weren't 100%. allowed that, as we say, but they were allowed to be powerful in a completely different way. And 100%. It's Yeah, it is really interesting how I think, going back to what we were originally saying, our grandparents and our parents' generation even didn't have as much of the space that we seem to have. All of it is like led to this moment. Obviously, they're part of it, even if they like refuse to be a part of, for example, like feminism or whatever it is, they see those as like dirty words. They are part of it. They're the one who's like paved the way for this this to eventually become what is now things that, you know, what people are talking about and how people are starting to re-see the world. Um, yeah. But it's so interesting. But hang on, sorry, just to get back to you and your story, <laughs> we could go on for hours. Literally, we could. <laughs> you were abused when you were younger. I was, yes. And if that's all right to go into that story. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it's such, it's such a, it's such a complex topic and it's something I've always kind of kept close to my chest and 
I'm sure anybody that's that's listening that's dealt, dealt with something similar will understand this, but it's something I've really kept close to my chest, especially as I've kind of grown as an artist. Because, you know, I want to be known for like the things that I do and the ideas that I have and the experiences that I create, not for being like, you know, the girl who was raped, right? Not, I don't want to be known for like having my agency taken away from me in a moment or a series of moments, you know, like I want to be known for the moments where I do exercise my agency. And so it's kind of a hard thing to almost, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of come out with, right? But I've had so much practice doing this with friends because literally almost every single one of my friends has a similar story and it's frightening. And so many women in the music, in the music industry have similar stories. Right. And so I think I remember, you know, there were like, you know, there was more than one instance starting when I was like, I want to say nine ish kind of escalating throughout my teen years and ending when I was like 20 and in college in New York with these like situations of, you know, violence at the hands of men assaults, rape, all of these types of scenarios. And they were very present throughout my, specifically my mid to late teens. Um, And it was a very defining type of scenario. And I think, I think part of it, and this is not to blame my father at all, because I, you know, I would not be where I am without my story unfolding in exactly the way that it has. Um, I think kind of, you know, you know, not being super close with my dad because, you know, he was in a different state and all of these things kind of led me to seek attention elsewhere, seek external attention. And I think that combined with a lot of the messaging at the time, which was kind of like, you know, 2006 to 2014-ish was like this notion that I was getting a lot in the media that was, you know, your value as a woman is who wants to have sex with you. Like that was the messaging that I was getting. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I haven't felt very valued by men. Maybe if I go and I spend time with certain people, you know, I was enjoying this male attention and it did make me feel valuable, right? And it wasn't until I was like 20 and had that happen for me in a really violent way. And I think I was 20 when I realized how wrong and how messed up it was. And that really was the catalyst for most of my healing. But there were moments up until that point where I had like trusted men I didn't really know that well. And they ended up taking advantage of me and assaulting me. And it kind of led, it was, it was so strange because the most recent one happened while I was like in nightlife in New York city. And I had already kind of decided I wanted to be a DJ and be in music, but I had been out and I had been very active in the party scene and in the club scene there, not in like the techno scene, but in more of the mainstream clubs. Mm -hmm. And it was great because I felt like I was, you know, like I felt like I was getting all of this attention and I loved the attention. Like I loved being like, this popular girl, right, who was there, who was fun, who everybody wanted to hang out with. Like, I love that, right? Mm. And so I kept going and I love nightclubs and I'm a big audiophile and I love speakers. So I love this like feeling of the nightclub, right? And that's why I was there. But eventually it kind of got to the point where I had this moment where somebody that was there ended up assaulting me. And it's funny because it was someone that my friend had like seen for a while and gotten a soup, like had a bad experience with. I had known when I, I was like, I don't like him, you know, like immediately, yeah. like, and this, the funny thing is yeah. like, anybody who's ever hurt me, I have gotten a vibe about them beforehand. So ladies, <laughs> if you get a vibe about somebody, listen to your own intuition, it will save you. But um, I had had this experience with this person and it was kind of after it that I had, after it happened that I was like, oh, this is 100% assault. And I had actually had to have a friend kind of be like, that's, you were assaulted. 
And it was from this moment where I kind of then had to kind of go back and unpack the scenarios where that had occurred before in my life and deal with all four of them at once. Right. And so, but it was at the same time where it was this exact instant, like this instance of what had happened that had kind of shifted me. Like it was the moment in my life that shifted me from being like my self-worth and inherent self-value is what other people think of me and who finds me attractive to shift to my inherent self-worth and self-value is who I am, what I do, my ideas, and how I express them. And that was kind of the moment where I had really nosedived into my music career, which had has gotten me here now to this conversation with you. Mm. So it's interesting. And it was and it was actually when I was 20, like like my mom doesn't really know anything about any of this that's happened, but my dad knows, and he doesn't know everything either, but he knows what happened when I was 20. And he was the person who was really there for me at that time. And I had to kind of educate him at the time, you know, a little bit about like messaging and shaming and all this stuff, but he was really the person that was there for me. And I think that was one of the moments that was a big growth catalyst for us. And so it's kind of weird how like, you know, and I don't blame him for anything, right? Like I made these decisions and I was seeking these things and scenarios. And ultimately, like I said, it put me on this path of like healing and self-healing that now puts me in a position to be able to talk about my experience and help others potentially heal themselves as well, which is something I find super um, rewarding is the opportunity to talk about these things. But it's interesting how kind of like every step I had taken led me to this point. And it was really like a divergence point Mm. where it was after this happened, it was like, you know, BC (laughs) and AD, right? It was like before this had happened, like, like after, you know, and now my life looks completely different. And so it was... It's, I don't know, I think it's, there's something to be said, right? Like, I think this is something that happens for so many women, right? Because like so many women that I know have had these experiences and it's an absolutely traumatic experience, but it's often a catalyst to heal, right? It's that like big, huge rock bottom moment. And it's a rock bottom of, that's not of your own doing, but it's still an emotional rock bottom that I think really does move and inspire people to heal and grow, right? Because I could not have, you know, like after that, like my whole relationship, my views of relationships completely changed. Like I approach romantic relationships now completely differently. I still don't trust certain men. I'm like, no, like get away from me. Yeah. Stay back. Yeah. Um, Can you talk to us a bit about what you mean about the difference in how you approach relationships pre and post? Yeah. I mean, well, I learned a lot to, to trust my intuition So like, and I don't really online date because I'm like, because again, like you can't really get a vibe from somebody through like four sentences and a swipe, you know, like you kind of like, so for me, it's very like, it's impossible. Like, and I think it's also like, you know, that intuition, am I safe with this person? Will this person hurt me? And then also, do we have the necessary chemistry that's required to have like a fulfilling you know, emotional and sexual relationship. Like those are two separate things, right? And so I tend to be very, um, I don't date a lot. Like I really, you know, I've been in my self-work for a very long time and, you know, I've wanted to kind of feel very rooted and cemented in myself, 
very healed. And also I just want to build my career. I'm a lot like my dad in that where I'm like, I want Mm. this career. And then once the career is in place, I'm sure I'll meet somebody that can fit in to my life. But I mean, it really is kind of like a a vibe situation, right? Like I can tell with certain men and certain behaviors, I'm like, no, right? Like, and it's, it's so funny kind of talking about this is like, since all this has happened, and even I think before, like, whenever I meet a guy and like date a guy, right, like, there's always this moment at the beginning where I have to be like, hey, you need like, you should be emotionally available. Do you know how to do that? Right. And it's this moment of like, it's you're allowed to talk about your feelings. And, you know, and sometimes I have to like, you know, talk a little bit about what happened to me and like, explain, you know, hey, like, yeah, here's my boundaries. These are things that I'm okay with. These are things that I'm not okay with. You know, this experience did happen, but kind of it's, it's really changed the way that I view relationships. Like, I don't, like, I don't like go out and sleep with strangers ever. Right. Like I have a very well-developed, deep understanding of consent. Like I understand consent fully and I do not put myself like, I make sure that everybody is cons- like, I will straight up ask all the time. I'll like, if someone's like flirting with me, I'll be like, are you hitting on me? Like, just like, I'll ask, even if yeah. I get a vibe, I just always ask. <laughs> right. Right. And so my view of consent is like very developed and understanding. And I'm super, cause I would never want to hurt anybody else, obviously. And then also, you know, for me and my safety, I like to make sure that I'm feeling safe and comfortable and you know, a lot of times when I just wanted attention when I was younger, I don't want attention now. Like I'm good. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, are you adding something to my life? Are you providing, you know, companionship that matters a lot? You know, and also like, I don't want to heal you. Like I am not a rehabilitation center for damaged men. (laughs) This was a very important boundary (laughs) that I had to learn as someone who did help heal my father. And as someone with a psych degree, I had to be like, it is not my job to fix you. And this was a bit, my mom used to call me Florence Nightingale because I liked, you know, birds with broken wings. Um, And that was something that I had to kind of fix. So when you tell, when you tell guys, how have they tended to react? Um, They tend to apologize. Okay. Um, Which is something I appreciate. And I'm always like, it's not your fault. Like the, 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 I think the innate response is to say, I'm sorry, right? Like, and I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm. It's a compulsion, right? To, you know, but I think it's kind of weird. And again, like, it depends on like the type of guy, right? Like with certain people, like with the people that I've ended up seeing for, you know, extended periods of time, they're always like very understanding and empathetic. And it's usually like, it's not something for me that really ever comes up during sex anymore. Like I've done enough trauma work that it's not something where I'll get like a flashback or a panic moment unless, you know, the boundaries that I draw are crossed. And those boundaries are really just like, don't do anything that could potentially put my life in danger or make me feel like I can't escape you. Right. Like that's really the extent of it. Right. Like I don't want to feel trapped in any scenario. Because that will trigger me. (laughs) Yeah. So please don't trap me. Right. But like we have these conversations and they go fine. And usually they're pretty understanding of it. Like it's different though, like talking to women or female friends. Because like, Almost all of my female friends have a similar story, right? Where they were like in a situation that they thought was trustworthy and they were a little bit drunk or on something else or somebody gave them something and then all of a sudden everything's black and somebody is doing something with your body and that you didn't consent to. And that is the story that I hear 
so much over and over and over. Like almost all of my friends have experienced the same thing. And so talking to women, women get it, right? And so there's Mm -hmm. like this like – like this ability to hold space, right? This like sisterhood type of thing to really understand that pain. And I think men understand it if they haven't experienced something like that, because I think a number of men have and they don't speak about it, but where they they just try to be empathetic. But really all I've ever asked for is to, you know, here I have been hurt. Please don't do these things, right? Yeah. And they're very respect, like receptive. Like it doesn't get brought up again or anything like that. Yeah. So I'd love to go back, and I hope you don't mind, to the first time that you mentioned that you got abused. I mean, so after my parents had been divorced, um, and I've never said anything, so I hope she doesn't listen to this, but if she does, we're going to have a very fun conversation about it. But um, she had been she had been dating after my parents got divorced, and, you know, the, the people that she was dating would kind of be in the house. And I remember one of them... And I remember this feeling wrong to me at the time as a child, and it was nothing super egregious, but like one of her, you know, boyfriends at the time had kind of like pulled me into the bedroom while he was in his underwear and like kind of like pulled me over and like put his leg over me when I was like a child. And I remember feeling like I was like, ooh, no, like and basically bailing immediately, like Mm. immediately. But it was this whole weird feeling of like, why is this man touching me? Right. And at that point, like, you know, my because my mom was like openly dating, I was like aware of what sex was and aware that, you know, she was doing all of these things, which I think was too early, obviously. But like, again, these are all parts of my journey that have led me to where I am. And it was just this weird moment where I think I was upset and it felt weird, but I didn't realize how wrong it was until I was in therapy when I was like 15 or 16 and talking about it. But it was this scenario where my mom, you know, I think had kind of you know, put me in an unsafe situation. And it could have been way worse, but there were still instances where I felt like she did prioritize her own, um, you know, joy and need to date. You know, like there wasn't really any separation. Like as soon as she was seeing somebody, they were kind of like there with us. And I, you know, I don't know if she would do that now, but it was kind of this weird thing that happened. And the attention that you craved growing up and the attention yeah. from men that you potentially particularly craved growing up, where do you think that stemmed from? Um, I think, I mean, I think it partially stemmed from this notion of like not having a consistent male figure there to kind of teach what like positive attention was. I also think it was because, you know, like my middle school and high school years were super challenging and that I was basically ostracized. We moved to Austin when I was like 11. And in middle school and high school, I, for some reason, basically overnight was like kind of an ostracized outcast, but everybody knew who I was, right? So like I wasn't super popular and that like everybody wanted to hang out with me and invite me to things, but everybody would like, you know, exclude me and say mean things about me. And like the guys would like joke about wanting to hang out with me and like all this stuff, right? And I actually... I spoke to a friend of mine that I went to high school with and he and I were talking about it like a year or so ago. And I was like, what was this? And he was like, I'm so sorry. I remember this distinctly. There was no reason. It was just one day everybody decided they didn't like you. Right. And I mean, it's, it's funny because now I'm the person, right. That's like in the entertainment business and I'm doing all this crazy stuff now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm 
the person, like I've always kind of been this person that's the underdog, you know? Yeah. To a certain extent, the underdog, but also this, like this presence, like I've always been like, wherever I go, people learn me and know me pretty quickly. Cause I just mm. have this, you know, there's yeah. something there. It's just like an energy. Right. And I think that's part of the thing that like attracts people to me, be they like friends and good people or people that want to like possess and exploit me. And I'm way better at preventing that now, right? Like way better. Like I do not allow that shit now. But like when I was younger, I was like, oh, finally people recognizing me or like telling me I'm pretty or like all these things that I felt like I wasn't getting because so much of my childhood and teen years was me just being alone. You didn't get it from your mother, your father, or your like school peers. There was this like continuous stream, I think, of rejection. Totally. And not being good enough. Totally. And not being someone's prior, not being anyone's priority. Right. Exactly. But you know, I was, I was my own, you know, and I was people's priority. I found out when it came to sexual situations, right? right? Like that was a scenario in which I was a priority. And I learned this, you know, on the younger side and it, you know, caused a lot of issues and caused a lot of issues for me with relationships until, you know, I hit that moment in my 20s where I was like, all right, no, (laughs) we need to fix this. Time to fix this, right? But yeah, it was this whole thing that existed. And it's kind of funny because, you know, it was at that time where I would really like lose myself in music, right? Like that was kind of the moment where like I didn't have anybody else. So I dove like deep into music and exploring music and curating music. And it really did I guess, prime me for my career as a musician now. First of all, because I'm like, I know what rejection is like, right? Like, I know what rejection is like. And then also like, you know, this this deep love and understanding ability to kind of lose myself in music now, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, now my career is not at all, like my career is not at all about like my ego. Like I don't want people to like look at me and look at what I do and be like, she's so hot. Like that's not, that's like, you know, I want to be really good, really skilled. You know, I want to be an industry legend within the next five to 10 years. Like that's what I'm aiming for because I work for it. And so these are the things that I work on. Like I lead now and you can see this, you've seen my Instagram. I lead now entirely with my skill set and the work that I create and you know, like the way that I look and everything is on the backseat. And it's funny because that really did shift after the assaults, right? Like there was this, I think there was this moment in my head and I have, you know, I have like some disordered eating habits that I'm like actively working through. But I think there was this moment in my head where I was like, oh, if I'm less attractive, nobody's going to want to hurt me. Right. And so that's this like messaging, right? Like if I don't stand out, people won't want to hurt me. And so that's, and it's interesting the, the way that things have changed in the last like five to 10 years. And I don't really wear makeup like at all. Like, and that's not because of that. It's more because, you know, I don't have time and it, it's a pain in the ass to take it off. But, you know, True. it's just one of this whole thing. It's like part of this whole thing that's like, you know, yeah. how did my behaviors change and shift, you know? after compared to before. And it's, I'm a completely different person. I think one of the things that is dangerous, right, for women, right, is thinking that all you have to offer is your beauty. Mm -hmm. I think that puts you in a space that is, that will result in a lot of, you know, pain in your young adult and, you know, older adult years, right? This notion, right? You know, and this goes along a lot with like society's messaging, you know, that women have an attractiveness expiration date. You know, women are only as good as their, you know, ability to bear you a child, right? You know, women have peak ideal years and then after that, nobody cares. Like 
all of these things, I think there's all this messaging, right? You know, this like, um, this, I guess, pressure to be this perfect Barbie doll human. And I think, I think it's unrealistic. I think, and I used to kind of want to be that person. Like I used to really want to be like this, you know, and it made me feel so unfulfilled, right? Like my, my perceptions of myself are extremely distorted. And if I was like rejected by somebody I was interested in, it would be like devastating, right? Like all of this stuff, right? Where if you see yourself as like really only an object for men to possess, right? It, you know, it, I think that's one of extremely unhealthy for women in general in through my lens, some people that works for it, but I think it sets you up for a lot of pain and suffering down the road. Cause what happens when you're in your late thirties, what happens when you're in your early forties, what happens when you're in your late forties, your fifties, your sixties, right? Like how do you age gracefully in a society if you only believe that like youth is beautiful, if you believe that your only value is, you know, what, you know, being a set of holes for powerful men, like how does that affect your life and what you do? Mm-hmm. And I've seen it, right? Like I've like, you can tell, and this is not to knock anybody, but you can tell women that are, that, you know, were taught that their only value was physical beauty, right? Cause you can tell, cause those are typically the women that end up like, you know, in their late thirties, early forties with like a ton of plastic surgery, eating disorders. And, you know, like you can mm-hmm. definitely see it. And it's the best thing I've ever done was get in a space with other women and work on healing that and redefining my idea of beauty. I think it's so, so important. That's yes. another thing that's grown out of like these experiences. We don't teach younger women that. This is the no. thing I've realized. Like I was never taught about boundaries when I was younger, right? Like there was zero point in my like teen years until I figured this out where somebody sat me down and said, and so I'm going to say it, where somebody sat me down and said, hey, your body is entirely your own. You have a choice of what to do with it, who to share it with, who to share your time and energy with. That is 100% up to you. And nobody, nobody's desires or feelings are more important than your feelings and your boundaries and your ability to feel safe and happy. Right. And I think like that was a big thing for me because I used to live in fear. Right. Like what was the worst thing that you could be called when we were younger? A bitch, you know, like. Well, for me, a slut. And you were called a bitch. (laughs) Yes, that too. A bitch and a slut. Right. If you rejected men, you were a bitch. And if you like were interested and wanted to explore your sexuality, you were a slut. Right. Mm -hmm. Women could never win. You were either one, the other or both. And I was called both of those things a slut, especially a lot when I was younger. You know, and it kind of like demonizes this healthy sexual relationship, right? And I think it like, you know, there's so much stuff that women aren't taught, right? Like beauty is amazing. Beauty is fleeting. Inner beauty, if you're beautiful on the inside, you feel healed, you feel vibrant, you believe in yourself and what you do, that is way more beautiful than spending like two hours on your contour. Trust me, I am speaking from experience. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking from experience here. Like I know what I'm talking about. Like, um... And it's, it's so crazy. And I think, I think women aren't taught that. And I think one of the reasons why, and this really kind of like changed, like blew my mind when I was younger, because I did write part of my college thesis about like the way that society perceives women and their beauty, right? My thesis was called the psychology of capitalism. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so funny, but I remember seeing something that like blew my mind, right? That was like, you know, if women were happy with themselves, how many industries would go out of business? 
Wow. Most of them. A lot of them. Oh my God, that's so true. That's, you know, that's one of the reasons, like how much, how much money does the makeup industry make every year? Like you have a whole crop of people on YouTube who think they're celebrities because they- It's plastic surgery. They teach people to get the, you know, like. I do see clothing as, you know, self-expression as as makeup can be same. very much as well. Same, totally. But there is definitely an unhealthy undercurrent for both of them as well. To do with appearance and beauty and satisfying the female and male gaze, but potentially even fellow females. Like there's this competitive nature around clothing. Totally. Yeah. Oh my God. I completely agree with you. And that Mm. was actually one of the parts of my thesis, right? These notions of the social construct of value, right? And how fashion and like high fashion has really become this kind of like status symbol currency thing where women, you know, assign value to other women, you know, and it's really, it's really just genius marketing by this consumption engine because fashion's what, like a ten billion dollar business yeah, yeah, or so, yeah. something crazy? Just feed like that every year. and vulnerabilities, and yeah, you're gonna make billions. <laughs> totally, yeah. You buy this Chanel bag, and all your issues are fixed. You're a cool person, right? Like all of these types of things, and it was this messaging I used to, and that's one of the other reasons why I wear only black and I dress the same all the time. It's like comfort. And then it's also, I th- I'm, I love fashion. I'm a big believer in fashion as self-expression, but I think all these like trend cycles and everything like mm-hmm. that, it's, it's, you know, nobody needs to replace their wardrobe every six weeks. Yeah. You know, like that's not necessary. It creates so much waste. It's all, it's just marketing. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all of this marketing. That's like, how are you the best woman? And I think you see it when you look mm-hmm. at like the 1950s, right? Like, have you seen the show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime? I've seen some of it. Yes. Yeah. She's amazing. Oh my God. So amazing. (laughs) So amazing. But you like look at like the social dynamic, right? Of like this upper middle class family in New York in the 50s, right? And this wife, this woman, she's the perfect wife, right? Like Mm -hmm. she like doesn't take her makeup off until her husband goes to sleep, right? And then she wakes up before he gets up so he never sees her without her makeup on, right? And she's always flawlessly dressed and cooking and doing like all, you know, these like notions of what the perfect wife or perfect woman is. Mm -hmm. And I think with feminism, now we're in this space where it's not about being perfect for a man. It's about being perfect for you. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for you? And how are you going to find out? Mm -hmm. Love that. It's a women's revolution. I was a trashy feminist about myself when I was younger and unhealed about other women too when I was younger and unhealed, you know, and like we can all change and grow and learn to support each other, which a big part of that is undoing the messaging that women have to compete. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the main things that keeps the patriarchy in place, this notion that you have to compete with other women instead of supporting each other. Oh my God, completely. But there's a big there's a big part of it in the music industry too, where it's like there's all these like young, beautiful women in techno that are kind of like rising up and they have these skill sets and they're they have these incredible fan bases, I think, you know, mostly because, you know, young, I, I think women are better at techno. I will die on this hill. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> it's that like feminine touch, right? This like groove with the music, this type of energy. And also because like how many bald white dudes do you need in techno, honestly, before yeah. you like can't tell them apart anymore. <laughs> but like, you know, you see all these young women in techno that are like about my age, a little bit older that are like pushing these boundaries and doing things that are fun and fresh and interesting. Mm. Right. And then you have there's like always this like, you know, trail of salty dudes in their 40s in their wake that are like, she's not good at this and she doesn't deserve this because mm-hmm. she's better than me. You know, like there's like all this weird misogyny. Men are so threatened by women who don't need them. So that's the way to achieve true power is to not need men. And then you're good. <laughs> 
The second you don't need men, you attract the one that's right for you. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh my God. <laughs> it could not be more true. I know from experience. It's the truth. So I have two more questions. Yes. The first one is this podcast is obviously looking at people who've grown up in some way with an absent father. And obviously in your case, also somewhat of an absent mother. And how mm -hmm. that that sort of absence then went into their drive, their purpose, the di their direction in life. We've spoken a bit about this with the fact that you saw music as something that you could get lost in, that mm -hmm. you could feel maybe a part of something and you could just be lost with yourself and your thoughts right. and like this beautiful sound that came through your ears. And that was from like school and probably other mm -hmm. stuff that, you know, had happened in your life. But you also right. mentioned how you're very, you've mentioned a couple of times actually how you're like your dad in the sense of like you have this drive and this focus and this determination and this ambition. But how do you think you would box, if you will, or describe how, where that drive and that ambition and purpose comes from for you? So I, I've always been, it's so funny. So I am, I like to say this and it's no knock on my parents, right? I'm a pretty even blend of both of them, but I'm like the evolved version, right? It's like Darwinism, like took a couple <laughs> steps between them and me, right? And it's partially because of the work that I've done, but really like I have my dad's like analytical ability, intellectual ability, like neurotic business drive. And then I have, my mom's a classically Amazing. trained concert pianist. So I have like all of her musical talent and stuff, you know, musical talent, her ear, like my ear is immac like immaculate like i'll forget i'll forget names immediately but i remember like all the lyrics that yeah. i learned when i was nine <laughs> you know what i mean like so it's this like equal combination yes, of the two of them their talents just distilled into me right and so i have this intense almost obsessive drive for music and creativity and it's 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 closer to a compulsion honestly than anything else like it's not like I was never like I want to be a famous musician right it was like I my mom I thought that in my teens because I want to start doing this in my teens I didn't start till I was about like 19 or 20 20 I think I want to start doing this in my teens but my mom was like it's too late for you to become a musician you didn't start learning early enough and I believed her for a while but then when I was in nightclubs and I saw DJing and I became friends with the DJs and they let me in the booth to watch them do what they were doing I was like I can do this <laughs> And so I did. And now it's been six years, right? <laughs> like for me, it's this, this compulsion, it's this drive, but really what drives me again is this kind of ability to connect with people and heal. And you and I have talked a lot like off camera. And so let's dive into it, right? <laughs> About like these like notions of like divine feminine spirituality and pagan religions and how that's been a big part of my healing and this connection to other women and connection to the earth. And, you know, this, this, uh, set of beliefs and values that, you know, allows women to be intuitive, emotional, natural, sexual, and all of these things without demonizing them. And that was one of the big things that mm -hmm. healed me. And it's still a big driver behind my music. Like I do a lot of, you know, energy work and healing and stuff like that. And that's all very present when I play, like when I DJ, like, like I do lots of channeling work, like, you know, channeling energy like spiritual energy while I play and I think that's part of the reason people really like watching me is because I have this like when I say that I channel I'm an open channel when I play I mean that like that's not hyperbole it's like something comes over me and I just I, I it's like I black mm. out like I don't even remember what I'm doing I'm just there and it's just like energy is coming down and like coursing through me and like hitting the crowd with the subs right and so a huge driver behind my music like I put 
so much of myself and I really try to channel and capture like these emotions, mm-hmm. these feelings, these messages. Um, and I think it's like sharing that, but it's also, I think, you know, I love the idea of like kind of helping to heal people through music. I think music's a great healer. And I think so many people don't realize they need to heal, but hitting them with like a bunch of like divine white light does nothing bad for anybody. <laughs> like, like, you know, just like, like, come see me. What you don't realize is you're getting surprise energy healing, but it's happening, you know? And it, it's so, it's so, you know, so I think it's, it's really sharing that, sharing experience. It's also like, you know, I think encouraging women to do things that maybe like aren't, you know, because when I was, you know, and we're kind of now that we're in our 20s, right? I think society is really just getting to the point where women are allowed Mm -hmm. to do whatever. Like I think Gen Z, the generation behind us is going to be the first one that really benefits from that freedom. Like it's still in progress for us, but just kind of, you know, because music production is like sound physics over time. So it's math and music theory together. It's like very complex, very Cody creative and analytical at the same time, which is why I love it. And I do really, really well with it. But you know, like these are things that you see men doing a lot, right? Like there's not a lot of women. And when women do show up, these guys are like, she's only here because she's hot or whatever, (laughs) whatever they say. Right. And so I think it's kind of like, I want to be there as this person that's like, Hey, you should do what makes your heart sing. What feels right for you. What feels right for you is what's right for you. And don't let anybody tell you differently. And so if that's music, if that's art, if that's creativity, whatever, you have some sort of gift to share. And if you're feeling intuitively called to share it, that means that's what you're supposed to do. Like that's your highest good, right? Is to share whatever unique thing you have to offer. And so that's really what drives me is to kind of share and connect with people. And I don't know, now I'm kind of like, you know, I think this music is going to be, my music career is going to be a wonderful catalyst Mm. for healing right? Like my first season in Ibiza, I want to start like moon circles with other female DJs and just get everybody there on the full moon. And we do like the circle and this, the circle and the sound bath and all the stuff. And everybody just comes and chills with no makeup on. And we just like channel the divine. Like that's the kind of stuff that I love. Right. And so that's a big part of it. It's so interesting how the thing that drives you is the fact that you've suffered and you felt pain in your life that you've then managed to find like a channel for and then wanting to share how you found healing and then how you can then help others with that particular thing that helped you so much. And I think so often, and we spoke about this on the phone, again, going back to Julia Samuel, actually, who's the psychotherapist who I got on the podcast a couple of times, where she says pain is the agent of change. So pain is the agent of change. Yes. And it's, I feel like that's what really feeds your drive. You've then been able to channel into something very positive and very expressive and creative and fruitful and exciting and all the rest for yourself with like limitless possibilities. Yes. But it's come from like an incredibly painful, lonely and isolating and dark place. And I think it's, yeah, it shows how, yes, you can have been disadvantaged or you could have had an, a traumatic experience, but use that experience somehow, find a way to channel that experience into something really good for yourself. Like, use it. You may not have had like 
control over that situation once upon a time as a child or as a young person or even as a young or even as an adult you may not have had control over that trauma that became part of your life it's always going to be a part of you but channel it in a way like you have into something where you then own it it doesn't own you yeah one of the one of the things my dad said and has always said that's really resonated with me is he you know he would always say um you can't control the situation but you can control how you respond to it right that's really all we can control is how we respond to things. And it's very hard, right, in a fear-based society to move from reacting from a fearful place to moving to reacting from a place of, like, love. But it's key. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast with Gabby Bernstein the other day, and she mentioned this Rumi, Rumi quote, and it really speaks to me. Um, the wound is where the light enters you. And... I found that to be true, right? And at my core, and I've so true at my core, and I've, you know, I've done, you know, we've talked a little bit about like my history of spirituality. I don't think we have time to dive too deep into that, but like, you know, at my core, like part two, yeah. At my core, I'm a healer, right? Like I am a healer. I've healed myself. I started healing my entire family when I was a teenager. Like I've always, every single friend of mine, right? I've always been that healing presence. And I don't know if that's like a past, it, it is, it's a past life thing that, you know, it's again in this life. Like that was part of my mission, right? Was to heal myself, my family, and then guide others to heal. And I have a specific medium that I do that with. And it's like my music, but now I'm opening up and having these conversations, but it's abundantly clear to me that like, that's your purpose here too. Right. And that's why you're here doing what you do. You're also a healer. Right. And it's, it takes so much strength to heal yourself. It's not an easy thing and it requires, you know, it requires work and obviously like kind of like digging into these parts, you know, like you have to dig the shrapnel out of the wound for it to heal correctly. It's kind of like that, like, you know, and it takes a while and it's really scary because it's ugly. It's not like a beautiful, it's not like you're just like, I'm just going to meditate in a meadow and then everything's going to be fine. Like, it's not like, 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 like sometimes you just got to cry it out and like, I'll have, mo I'll have moments where I'm like, oh, do I need to cry? I think I need to cry, you know? And then you like take care of all your stuff, right? But there's so much power in this vulnerability, right? And I think people are so scared of negative emotions. Like we're scared of what will happen if we go back. But I think there's the, the, the growth on the other side once you kind of accept what's happened to you and not excuse it. Because like if you've experienced trauma or somebody has violated you or hurt you, like that is not okay. You did not deserve it. Like, it is not your fault. And I want to make that very clear, right? But like, after you have the experience, you can't undo the experience, right? So it is, you know, what does it mean for you? Like, how do you heal it so that it doesn't, the wound doesn't affect you anymore? How do you heal so that you can tell other people, you know, for me, tell young women, your boundaries are important. They are yours. You deserve them. Do not let anybody cross them. If they do, never speak to them again, right? Like all these important messages, listen to your intuition. Society teaches women to ignore it, especially, right? Like I think that's part of the reason they were burning witches at the stake, right? It's because you have all these women that are together as a group, right? And they're like engaging in this intuition. And I really do think that is a big part of like divine feminine power, right? Is this intuition, this connection with the moon, all of these concepts are connected. And it's so important to listen to that, right? On people, on experiences, like, 
you know, the best thing I did was not listen to my parents about what I should do with my life. Like when I was doing my music, like I have a degree from NYU. I told you all about the degree. I have a very fancy degree from NYU and I was trying Mm -hmm. to use it in corporate America and I am exactly like this all the time. So I was not a fit (laughs) in corporate America because I was quote unquote insubordinate, right? Which means that when I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing this? My boss would get upset. But you know, I didn't listen and I, you know, have built this this music career and have achieved all these amazing things by myself with no training or, or help, mm-hmm. really, um, all my own money. And now I'm in this position and it's the best thing I've ever done. And it's because I knew that this was what yeah. was right for me. You right? followed your so, intuition. And you too, you've <laughs> built this thing. Yes. And you've built this incredible podcast, right? And you get to speak to incredible people and talk about healing. And obviously you and I met, which was the whole reason it was supposed to happen anyway. So... <laughs> The whole reason, right? No, <laughs> you know, and so it's a, uh, you know, mm. and that was, you know, born out of your innate healing abilities and desire to help others and share your story and let people know, like, hey, the common messaging on this isn't right. Your life is what you make it. If your dad was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to him? Um, I mean, I would say thank you, honestly, like. He's, he's not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. I know that he did his best. He did what he knew to do at the time. He did what he thought was right. He and I, he feels very guilty not being there. I know that. We've had a conversation about it where I was kind of like, it's not your fault, right? Like, and again, like, I really was the kind of child, the kind of person that needed to raise myself. Like, I just, I like, I would not be who I am without experiencing everything I had experienced, right? Like it was a part of my divine journey to get to where I am now. And I don't know if he, I don't think I've said that to him, but it really is a part of it. And I am so grateful to him for like, once I got myself to the point where he and I could relate to each other and where I was able to empathize and understand him, we have an awesome relationship now, Mm -hmm. like a great relationship. Like he's so helpful for me. Like anytime I have any business questions, I'm like, dad, you know, (laughs) help. Right. And so he's been so amazing and he's been so there for me as a person in my adult years. And like, I got through to my adult years just fine on my own. Like, you know, like, and I wouldn't be the person that I am today if it wasn't exactly the way that it happened. Right. And that's, you know, kind of again about like taking, taking your darkness and turning and turning it into something that's light Mm -hmm. and growth. Right. And he and I have been able to talk. And so I'm grateful to him for the man that he is and the person that he is and, you know, the genetic gifts that he passed on to me and my mom too. And like I said, they're both incredibly flawed people, but you know, they do their best and I love them and you know, they're still healing, right? Like all of our parents are still healing and we're more healed than all of our parents. And I think that's a big part of this like change that's happening right now, this like energetic ascension, right? Like humanity can go on a different course with our generation healing ourselves and then teaching our children and our parents even to heal themselves too. That puts us on a much more balanced direction in terms of like our relationship with the planet, shifting the notion of what value is. And so I think all that needs to happen. So I would say thank you because it's, again, here I am. So oh, thank you. Yeah. And I love him. I oh, love my dad. that's so nice. Yeah. That's so nice. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been absolutely incredible. 
There are so many lessons in this podcast Yay. episode. It's mad. There is just so much. So oh, thank you so much for coming on. That makes me so happy. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with the incredible Sarah. Oh my God, there's so much more I want to ask about. There's so much more I want to ask that woman and hear her speak. She speaks so beautifully, so articulately. But luckily, she is about to start a podcast, which launched, I believe, last week. So her Instagram handle is on the show notes of this episode. And so if you liked Sarah and want to hear more from her, which I'm sure you do, go onto the show notes, follow her on Instagram, and there will be links to her podcast and obviously her incredible music. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I once again feel so lucky to be doing the job that I do. And thank you all so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day or night. If you've been affected at all by anything that's come up in the episode, I advise two places where you can visit. The first is Julia Samuel's website, www.juliasamuel.co.uk. The other place is www.untangle.life which is for people experiencing grief love to thank Warren Borg at Wargy Productions for doing all the mastering and compressing and Julieta for providing Daddy Issues podcast season 2 music which I am obsessed with lastly I'd love to thank all of you for listening and also staying on this long to listen to the rest of the outro as without you of course there would be no podcast so thank you so much and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or night